Hello, and welcome to the Her Head in Films podcast. I'm your host. My name is Caitlin. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films I watch. They usually tend to be uh, art house cinema or world cinema. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking about the cult classic horror film, Carnival of Souls, directed by Herc Harvey and released in 1962. If you're new to the podcast and you don't know who I am, I'm a writer. I consider myself a dreamer. I'm someone who really loves literature, art, poetry, and in the last few years, I've developed this intense, uh, overwhelming passion for cinema. And um, it started around 2011, although I kind of got more into films probably as a teenager, 16, 17. But it became more powerful uh, in 2011, in my early 20s. And um, I created this podcast because I wanted to share my passion for films. I live in a rural area. I don't have an art house a theater near me don't have any kind of access to a cinephile culture so I really want to be able to talk about films and so that's why I do this podcast um, if you're new to the podcast and you don't know what the title refers to it comes from an email I sent a friend a few years ago at the time I was obsessively watching films and I wrote in that email that my head isn't in the clouds my head is in films and so it was the perfect way to describe the way that I engage with cinema and how it's something that's interwoven into my life and something that I'm always thinking about. And that's really what this podcast is about. It's not just about the films. It's about my relationship to them, why they move me, why they're important to me. And I try to weave in my own personal experiences and feelings with the films that I watch and that's essentially what I'm trying to do because for me film is life-saving and it's life-affirming and it's not an intellectual exercise I don't have any kind of degree in film studies or any um, experience with academia I'm very much self-taught and I'm really learning about cinema through the great films that I watch and um, and so what I offer is my personal take on these films. And so um, this podcast does have a Patreon where you can help sustain it and financially support it if you would like to. I have a lot of rewards and extras available to patrons and um, there's much more interaction there. And, and so I would you know, love to have you as a patron if you'd like to. At one level, you can get a shout-out on the podcast. So I just want to take a moment to do the shout-outs. And I'll give a shout-out to Michelle, Jesse, Lindsay, Olivia, Carolyn, and Feminist Overlord. Thank you all so much for being patrons of the podcast. I appreciate it so much. I appreciate all of you who listen and share Um but if you'd like to be a patron, it's at, at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. So as I said, today's episode is about a horror film called Carnival of Souls. And it's how it's near Halloween as I record this. It's sort of like the last week of October. And that's why I'm doing this episode because I wanted to talk about a horror film. And I kind of get into Halloween. I don't watch a lot of horror films. I wouldn't say it's my primary genre or anything, but I get into the Halloween spirit. I like to call this the most ghoulish time of the year, and it is, and I don't like gory horror films, and I don't like graphically violent horror films, but I do like horror that is maybe more psychological and is uh, maybe more chilling or suspenseful, and um, I mean, some of my favorite horror films are... Uh, Diabolique, which I just watched last night, which is really good, by Clouseau, uh, with Simone Signore. And I love a film, a little British film that nobody talks about called uh, Dead of Night. I really like that. I like Psycho. I like The Others. Um, I like The Haunting from, I think, 1963, 
which is based on Shirley Jackson's book, The Haunting of Hill House, which is one of my favorite books of all time. I'm a huge fan of Shirley Jackson. Um, to go with the Halloween theme of this week, I'm also reading her book, Dark Tales, which is just a collection of some of her like creepy, spooky, uh, haunting uh, short stories. And it's really wonderful. And it's really gotten me sort of, <clears throat> sorry, it's really gotten me into this horror mood, you know. So when I got to thinking about films that I wanted to really talk about and go deeply into, Carnival of Souls was the one that I immediately thought of. I watched it for the first time in 2016, so around Halloween of last year in 2016. And it has stayed with me ever since, and I didn't expect it. Um, I had heard of the film, I had seen maybe some stills of it or some photographs of it, but I did not expect this film to stay with me the way that it has. And so that's what this episode is going to be about, is why, why in particular does this one have such an impact on me? So as I said, it was directed by Herc Harvey, released in 1962. I think a few of the things that make this film so unique, um, first of all, is the location. It was filmed in Kansas and in Utah, and that's sort of, I don't know, I would say it's an unlikely location. It's This is really a film set in like middle America, in rural America, and in the everyday world of everyday people, and it's specifically set in um, this pavilion in Salt Lake City. It's in a place called Salt Air, uh, Salt Air Pavilion, I guess, in Salt Lake City. And it's this sort of abandoned, dilapidated pavilion. And that's what it really inspired um, Herc Harvey to make the film, is that he saw that pavilion and he thought that it would be perfect for a film. And really, Harvey never made another feature film. He worked, um, he worked in industrial film. He made like, uh, yeah, he just worked in industrial film. He wasn't sort of like a mainstream Hollywood director or anything. This was a low budget independent film. But even with that, he's able to create this mood, this atmosphere. Um, it's the music is part of it. it. The main character, Mary Henry is an organist for a church. So there's organ music throughout the film. And I actually have the soundtrack and it's this very eerie, spooky soundtrack. There's a surreal quality about the film. You're never sure what's dream and what's reality and what's, what's real and what's not. The main character, Mary Henry, is a very intriguing, fascinating character, which I'll go deeply into. There's this amazing, gorgeous black and white cinematography that incorporates eerie shadows and reflections. And so there's so much to this film. And it's when it was released in 1962, first of all, 10 minutes were shaved from it. It was much shorter. The the version that a lot of people saw, like in drive-in theaters, did not include like 10 minutes, which is sort of um, the part where um, at the end, well, I will say this, there will be spoilers. I'm going to talk about everything about this film, including the ending, and so do not listen past this point if you don't want to know what happens in the film. But at the end, when there's the zombies that are dancing in the pavilion, some of that was actually cut. So what audiences saw in 1962 was a bit different from what we see now with those 10 minutes added. Um, but it started, it, it did not get a lot of attention when it was released in 1962. It was sort of forgotten, honestly. It didn't, it didn't make a big impact or anything at the time. Although many say that George uh, George Romero did see it um, when he made his Night of the Living Dead in 1968, that he had probably seen Carnival of Souls and was influenced by it. The way that it became a cult classic was partly through it being shown late at night on television. So a lot of people would see Carnival of Souls on television at night. 
and I guess people just started to become very enamored with it. And that really intrigued me. I watched like an interview that Hurt Carvey did, um, I think for Kansas State Television. Um, and it's on YouTube. It's just this interview that he did with the writer of the film, John Clifford. And I'll talk a bit more about Clifford in a moment. But, um, where was I going with that? I just lost my thought. But I watched this documentary sort of about the film and about the making of the film. And so it's just interesting to think that the way people discovered this film was television. And, you know, you think of nowadays how things have changed so much. The way people discover films, the way people watch films. And, uh, but I know that when I was growing up, when I was younger, you know, I would watch TV late at night. And I tell you, you could find all kinds of things late at night on TV, couldn't you? I mean, <laughs> I used to watch, like, television shows that, like, don't even get shown anymore or talked about. Um, and then also movies and, and things like that. And so it's sort of when I heard that, I was like, oh, it kind of made me nostalgic for those days when I used to, like, be a teenager. I used to be much younger than that, probably 10 or 11 staying up really late at night and watching weird things on TV because you never knew what was going to come on. And But sometimes you could make those little discoveries by accident, you know, without even sort of realizing um, how important, you know, the film was. So as I say, the inspiration for Hurt Carvey was the Solitaire Pavilion in Salt Lake City, Utah. He was really enchanted by it, and he imagined a film where the final scene had these ghouls or these dead people or zombies dancing, you know, dancing in the pavilion. So he went to his friend, John Clifford, and he asked him to write a script. And Clifford said, um, he wrote this like short essay for the Criterion Collection, because the Criterion Collection has released Carnival of Souls as part of its, uh, you know, collection. It's part of that. And Clifford wrote that the script actually came pretty easily and quickly. I think he wrote it in two or three weeks. And, um, and so Clifford, in his essay, it was really fascinating, the things he wrote. And I just want to you know, take a few quotes from it. And he said, quote, while thinking about a character in a story, I was also trying to think of locations that would put atmosphere on the screen at little expense. And one of the places I thought about was the Reuter Organ Company here in Lawrence, Kansas. Reuter, or Reuter, I'm not sure, might be Reuter, builds church pipe organs, and I had seen the room where they assemble the test, these, and test these exposed pipes, unquote. So it's interesting to see that he's really taking inspiration for the script from his own everyday life. That he saw these organs, he had heard the music, and so that's why Mary Henry is made into an organist. And he also writes, and because this was a low-budget film, and because it was um, an independent film, that influenced the script as well. Clifford writes, quote, from the writer's angle, I was freed by the fact that I, that I had no need to worry about Hollywood formats. I didn't have to conform in any way. I knew who the producer and director would be and that he would be open to whatever I proposed. It is, for instance, one of the few films from that period or even today that has no love story or romance, even as a subplot, unquote. And I had not really thought of that until I read Clifford. And that is true, that this film does not really have romance or love. And usually when you have a film about a, a female character as the central character, that can tie into it a lot. And so actually, if you think about it, that's really a refreshing part of this film, that it's not about Mary finding a man. and or any, She has some interaction with a man that I'll talk about as well. Um, but it's not the primary concern of the film. Another thing for him, Clifford writes, that he thinks that part of the reason that the film sort of lingers for people, in, in his opinion, um, 
is, quote, I decided early on to give the heroine no real sympathy or understanding from any other character. For the viewer, there is no relief from her dilemma, no catharsis, except what viewers create for themselves. I believe that is one reason the film tends to linger in the mind, unquote. And I think Mary is central to the power of this film, and her character is an interesting one. And I will talk about that in depth as well. And he said, and this is something that I really love as well. He said, quote, all I know is that the movie was created, directed, filmed, and edited by people who loved the idea of making a picture, not to exploit anything or fit into any special niche, but just to make the best film they could with the limited resources available to them, unquote. I think that can be one of the pleasures of independent filmmaking, of, of watching independent film, is that these are people making films for the sole reason not to make money, not to exploit anything in particular, but to tell a story and to make a good film. And there's this love and this passion that is put into it. And you can tell that John Clifford and her carving, everybody involved in the film, did it because they really loved it and enjoyed it. So as I said, this was a low-budget film. It was made for around $30,000, which is very low. Harvey deployed sort of guerrilla-style tactics in order to make the film. He didn't get permits. Um, he would sort of pay people off and, you know, get them to let him uh, film in certain locations and not call the police or, or anything like that. Um, the opening scene of the film of the race, the drag race where they uh, drive into the water. The only thing that he had to do, uh, and that was filmed in Kansas, the only thing he had to do was repair the um, the railing that the car breaks because it goes into the water on, over the bridge. And he just had to fix that and repair it. And I think it was just like, a, it wasn't very expensive to do it. Um, and so they just let him shoot there. And to shoot at the pavilion, um, he just had to rent it. Like, I think he rented it by the day or something like that. And it wasn't expensive at all for him to get the pavilion. So he, both he and Clifford, with the writing, as Clifford said, he made sure to try to think about different locations or different things that would be low budget, you know, like like filming at a church, you know, filming the organs. And there's these gorgeous scenes of the organs um, at the churches. And um, so they both kept economy in mind with the film. And yet I don't think that it compromises the film in any way. This film has had an immense afterlife. As I said, it, many say that it did inspire George A. Romero's 1968 classic, Night of the Living Dead. It really has just grown in acclaim, and it is considered a cult classic and a bona fide classic. Um, it also inspired a 2007 film by Christian Petzold called Yella um, with Nina Haas, and I'm a big Christian Petzold fan. I love his film Phoenix, and I love his film Barbara. I haven't seen Yella, but it's sort of based on Carnival of Souls, and I also believe there was a remake made of the film in the late 90s though who cares you know the original is always the best um so now i'm just going to talk about various parts of the film and go deeper into the plot deeper into what i think this film is saying and doing and um i feel like this is a horror film but it's so much more than that i think it's horror at its best i think i think great horror films they tap into something sort of primal or they tap into something they tap into fears or an uneasiness or something that disturbs us i think and i mean i'm not articulating the way i would like to i'm not a horror film aficionado here you know i don't watch a lot of horror but i have a certain taste when i do watch films of that genre and I think this film has a lot of depth to it and a lot of richness. I don't think Clifford and Harvey necessarily intended it. What was interesting about that interview that I saw of the two of them on the Kansas State uh, television show 
is that they said that they said that I think this was like in 1990 uh, or in the late 80s that they did the interview because Harvey died in, in the late 90s. Um, he said some they they were talking about it. they were talking about how people even then it had become a cult classic. It was about 20 years after it had been released and people were coming up to them and saying, Oh, what did you intend with this? And, you know, I guess maybe film studies people or like film buffs were asking them, Oh, what did you mean by this? And what did you mean by that? And they said that they didn't necessarily consciously have those things in mind that it's sort of, I guess what the audience brings to it. And so I think that's really interesting that they made this amazing film, but not everything about it was necessarily planned or intended. They were thinking about the budget and they were thinking about how to tell a good story. But like I say, there is a lot of depth there. So onto the film itself. Mary Henry is a young woman um, played by an actress named Candace Hillegoss. And Mary Henry is with two other girls in a car and they're drag racing. The car goes over the side of a bridge and it goes into the water. We see Mary emerge from that water. She's muddy. She's shocked. She's shaken. And she is apparently the only survivor of the crash. So she's undergone this profound trauma of the of the crash and she has emerged as the sole survivor so she works as a church organist um, apparently I guess she lives in Kansas and she decides for whatever reason that she's gonna move to Utah I would think maybe some of this is spurred by the trauma of the crash that she wants to get away from the scene of the crash away from the memories of what happened and I think she believes that if she can start a new life in another state that she can maybe outrun the what happened and maybe escape it in some way everyone in her life thinks she's acting very oddly she's not showing enough emotion um, although she could be in a lot of shock and that could be the way that she's processing this trauma but she is haunted by what happened she drives over the bridge where the accident happened she really as i say seems to be leaving the town in order to escape the memory but it's interesting because one of the people says she's not there he's just talking to this other man and he says if she has a that if she has a problem it will follow her no matter where she goes so he's basically saying that she can't escape this trauma, but obviously she thinks she can. So she's driving to Utah in the dark. And th I think this scene is a really great example of the way that Harvey uses light and dark and shadows and the way he uses reflections because she's driving in the car and for the first time she sees a man in the window of her car. It's this very ghoulish, dead-looking, I'm going to call him a zombie or a phantom. I, in my notes, I called him a phantom because we don't know what he is. If he's real, if she's imagining him, he has very dark makeup on his eyes, and um, but he definitely looks dead or looks like a ghost. And, um, I mean, those of you who have seen the film probably know it, but that man is Herc Harvey. That is the director. And, again, he did that out of economics because he said, obviously, that it was cheaper for him to be the actor. And um, so he appeared, and then he appears in the road. So first he's reflected or his face appears in the window of the car, and then he's right in front of the car and she crashes. And so this phantom will recur throughout the film. And I guess you could endow this phantom with any kind of symbolism you want to. I mean, a part of me thinks maybe he represents the trauma of the car crash, the trauma that she is trying to escape and that keeps pursuing her. Um, but he could, he could have other malevolent symbolism about him, obviously. So she moves into a rooming house um, and again, she sees this phantom man's face. 
she gets a job as an organist at another church. Um, and it's interesting, she says that she doesn't want to meet the congregation. So she is starting to really isolate herself, and she wants to isolate herself from other people. And this will be also, I think, a recurring part of the film is Mary's relationship to the world, Mary's relationship to other people, and her disconnection from them. And that's also another reason why I find her so fascinating and why this film, for me, it resonates with me. And I'll talk about all that much deeper when I talk about certain scenes. And by this time, the word soul has started to recur. It, it started first in Kansas, av right after the car crash when she was playing the organ at the old church. And the minister there told her that she needed to play with more soul. And then it shows up when she's in Utah, playing at the new church. And the minister is hearing her rehearse, and he says that her music stirs the soul. So we start to get this focus on the soul. This is also when we discover the pavilion. Mary is really captivated by this old abandoned and dilapidated pavilion in Salt Lake City, the one that inspired her Carvey Saltaire Pavilion. And it used to hold dances, she's told, and then it used to be this massive dance hall, and then it was turned into a carnival spot. Um, but it's been abandoned since then, and she is very drawn to it. And um, so at the rooming house, there's only one other tenant, and that his name is John Linden. Mr. Linden is what they call him. And to me, he came off really creepy. Um, she's taking a bath, and he shows up at her door, and she goes to the door thinking that it's the woman who runs the rooming house, but it's him. And so she's very shocked, and she is just in her towel and she goes to put her robe on, and he is, like, standing at the door watching her do this. And he's very pushy. He's very aggressive, I would say, in some ways. Um, and it sort of reminded me of the vulnerability of a woman being on her own and being alone. And I think Mary is vulnerable in that way. And her relationship with Mr. Linden is one that I'll talk about more. And... As I say, he came off really creepy to me, personally. Um, so, And this phantom keeps recurring as well. The, the phantom is always sort of there, frightening her. And a really important scene happens where she goes shopping at a department store. She's shopping for like a dress, probably for her job. You know, where she plays the organ at the church where you probably have to dress, you know, somewhat, you know, formally. And all of a sudden, and I think this is one of the things that makes the film so unique and why it is really important to me personally. This scene in particular, um, this is really a crucial scene for me and why this film stuck and gotten got into my system so the screen starts to go wavy and watery, and all of a sudden, no one interacts with Mary. She tries to talk to them, but they don't see her. They don't acknowledge her. She can't hear them either. And it's just this really strange moment where she is completely severed from everyday reality. She's in this dream world or in another dimension, and it's very frightening for her to all of a sudden not be visible to people, to not be in contact with people. Um, she is completely separate, and those are words that she uses later when she's talking to a therapist about what happened. Um, she says that it's like she didn't exist, like she had no place in the world, and that she wasn't involved in the life around her. And this scene was jaw-dropping for me when I watched it and when I saw the film for the first time. And it has stayed with me ever since I saw the film because I myself often feel this, dis this disconnection from life and the world and the people around me. And so this is probably the most profound as aspect of the film, this scene, 
um, I have these strange moments, and I've always had them for a lot of my life, but probably especially since I was a teenager, of unreality, of like, and I don't even know how to put it into words, it's something very unspeakable for me, and it's it's difficult to articulate or verbalize in a way that makes sense to other people or or that captures the essence of the experience. But I distinctly remember a moment in high school, and I was probably 16, 15 or 16, and I was in the bathroom. Like, we would change classes, obviously, those of you who have gone through high school. You know, you change classes, and the hallways are just packed with people. And I've always suffered from mental illness with depression and anxiety. And I've always had really strong social anxiety in my life. And it's with me still. And it's something that I really struggle with and that really affects my life in every way. And so when when we would have to change classes, it was hell for me. Because I hated all the people I being around. I hated the noise and the crush of people. And it just gave me, like, panic you know, I, I would feel panic, I would feel anxiety. And so sometimes when the bell first rang, I would go into the bathroom and I would sort of wait until the crush of people had sort of dispersed and the hallways were not quite as crowded. And I still remember this time I would I went into the bathroom and I was looking in the mirror at myself and I couldn't recognize myself. I was looking at me, at my face, but I didn't recognize it as me or as my own. And I would call that a moment of unreality where I could not connect with my body or what I looked like. And I was reminded that I am this physical being that other people see. And yet what they see does not represent who I am. That I am this, there is this other me, this other part of me, I guess you could call it my essence or my soul, right? Even though I'm not religious. And neither is Mary, by the way. She plays an organ at a church, but she's not religious and she just does it for money. There is this essence or soul of me that really has no physical form or cannot be represented by the physical but nobody can see it. It's hidden, you know, or or I guess it comes out in my words and what I say or what I write or in the art that I create, you know, the, the writing that I create. And I just kept staring at myself in the mirror. And I was like, who is that? I don't know who that is. Like, that's my face, but that's not me. And I don't, I don't know how else to say it, but I didn't recognize myself. I didn't connect to my physical being. And I've always had issues with embodiment. I've always felt disembodied in a way. I've always felt disconnected from my body. And um, so when Mary has that scene of the unreality of not being recognized or seen or not feeling connected to life or not feeling connected to reality not feeling like she exists, that was profoundly resonant for me. Because that's the feeling I get sometimes. It's like I don't exist. I, I've said it before on this podcast. I feel very invisible, very marginalized, silenced in everyday life. You know, nobody cares what I have to say. Nobody cares about me. I don't matter to a lot of people. I have my mom, and that's about it. But I'm very invisible. You know, people don't see me. Or if they do see me, they don't necessarily treat me very well. I'm not particularly pretty or attractive in any way. And as you know, as women, you know, so much of how we're treated in the world or how we're valued is based on our looks. <clears throat> so this scene was just amazing to me when I saw it the first time. I felt like... I felt like it was representing my own experience of unreality in a way, even though it's very specific to the story. Um, 
but her unreality is finally broken when she goes to this water fountain. Well, first she sort of goes to this tree, I think, and hears like a bird twittering. And then she goes to a water fountain and she runs into a man that she thinks is the phantom. But then she meets this other man who's a therapist and goes to his office his office and she's talking about the phantom that she's been seeing and the therapist tells her that it's basically a figment of her imagination and she talks a bit about how she doesn't feel capable of being close to other people um and she thinks that if this phantom is in her imagination then she can make it stop by going to the pavilion and um she again is obsessed with this pavilion for some reason and it attracts her but I thought it was interesting that line about her feeling incapable of being close to other people that is a theme that goes throughout the film for her is that she and again I relate to this she feels disconnected she feels separate she feels outside of society outside of the world and I've always felt that way I've never felt like I fit in never felt like there was a place where I belonged and, um, so that was something that especially resonated for me is, is her feeling of separateness. And she does go to the pavilion. She walks around, she looks at it. It's this very eerie place, but it's, it's one of those settings that it's so fascinating to see it. And it's fascinating to me that Harvey got this idea for the film that he was just so enamored with that pavilion in Salt Lake City because it's such a fascinating location for a film and it's so unusual and I wonder if that's also part of why this film um has developed a cult following is it's so unique in that regard so Mary returns to the rooming house and she has this interaction with Mr. Linden and um, he definitely wants more from her than I think she wants to give. He asks her out and she declines and then he calls her very cold and he asks if she's afraid of men and um, I thought that was I just thought that was an interesting interaction. I think it fits back to what Clifford was saying, how this film does not have a romance as a subplot and how unusual that is that so many films when they centralize women revolve around a love interest. They they revolve around a woman falling in love, a woman being with a man. And this film and maybe it's also why I love it so much, does not have that. She has a few interactions with Mr. Linden, but he's not. Their relationship or their interaction is not the central point of the film. This is not a film about a woman trying to fall in love or, or anything like that. And it is unusual in that way. It's really about a woman's... I think it's about a woman's trauma, and I'll talk more about that. And I guess in a way I'm trying to make a case for this film being about trauma in some way. Or unresolved trauma. Um, it's about psychological disintegration in a way, I think. Um, it's about a woman who feels very unreal and separate from other people and she feels alienated there's a deep loneliness and alienation in this film that is the bedrock of it for me and that really taps into sort of my own emotions personally and so yeah I mean I guess if a woman's not pursuing a man or is not obsessed with men she is seen as cold isn't she or she's seen as afraid of men or hating men and Mary's just sort of neutral. In in a way, I think she uses Mr. Linden at times. Like, she eventually says, yeah, I'm going to go rehearse at the church. I'm going to rehearse on the organ. You can meet me after if you want. And she really does that more because she doesn't want to be out at night alone. So she's really just using him in that way for that. And when she's rehearsing the organ at that church, there's this amazing scene where she's playing the organ at the church that night 
And um, she starts to become overcome by the music. She's almost possessed by it as she plays. And then we see the Phantom Man. And we see all the other phantoms and ghosts at the pavilion dancing. And it's really sort of a foreshadowing of the ending. They have these dark lips, and they definitely are dead, and they look like zombies. And again, you have to remind yourself, this is before the zombie films. This is before Night of the Living Dead. So this film really predates a lot of that stuff, and is pretty um, important because of that. And it's just this amazing scene where you see the zombies dancing at the pavilion. And the minister comes over to her and he's horrified by what she's playing. And I guess he thought it was demonic in some way. And he accuses her of having no soul. And he says that he has to let her go. And so she really loses her job. And so after that, she meets up with Mr. Linden and they go out to a bar and they drink. And the, and the scene that comes, he is very persistent and aggressive. And again, um, this film shows women's vulnerability when they're traveling alone, when they're living alone, when they're just trying to live their lives on their own. How women are often vulnerable and exposed to male violence not that mr linden is violent but to male aggression um to male attention that is unwanted often um and and mr linden for me sort of represents this kind of male aggression towards women and um, i'm not going to say the film is feminist but i think that's an interesting part of it is that First of all, it never sexualizes Mary. I mean, yeah, there's a scene where she's in a bathtub, but there's no nudity in this film. There's no sex in this film. There's, I would say that Mary is actually a pretty multidimensional, well-rounded, well-shaped character, honestly, that who is not defined by her sexuality. Is, is Candace, the actress, beautiful? Yes, she's blonde, she's thin, she's conventionally attractive, absolutely. But she is not defined by her beauty. I mean, she's just not. And I find that really refreshing about this film. You know, a lot of horror films that you watch with women in them are often really misogynistic. And they're really like slut shaming and, and sex shaming, you know, if a woman is sexual or, or they exploit women's sexuality by showing a lot of nudity or violence. So this film is nothing like that. I mean, if you're going to see this film and you're like a horror film buff and you're not prepared for it, you might be kind of disappointed. I think it actually has a really complex portrayal of a woman. I mean, especially in 1962, I thought I, I'm pretty impressed by it personally and especially how they show her dealing with Mr. Linden and dealing with this male aggression and really now that I think of it she is pursued by men throughout this film and she cannot get away from them whether it's the phantom man or it's Mr. Linden or even the male therapist that she talks to I mean no wonder she wants to get away from people she can never have a moment to herself when she's not having to deal with men. And she rebuffs Mr. Linden's ad advances. And he really refuses to take no for an answer. He follows her. He goes up to her room. Um, at one point, you know, he's coming on to her. And she's obviously doesn't want to engage in any kind of sex with him. And he sort of seems to morph into the phantom man and she starts shrieking and this scares him away, obviously, you know. Um, so I felt like some of this film was really about a woman being pursued by men, by aggressive men, by frightening men at times and how they will not leave her alone. And I think there's, I think that's an important aspect of the film that it shows is women's vulnerability to male violence and male aggression. And I've really just been thinking about what this film means. I mean, I'm going to jump to the ending. I mean, we know that when the car is dredged from the lake 
or yeah, from the like in Kansas, back in Kansas, you know, the car that Mary Henry was in and that went off the bridge into the water. In the final scene, it's dredged up and we see her in it. We see Mary in the car. We see that she is not alive. She did not survive the crash. She did not emerge, you know, from that crash. She died with the other women, with the two other women. All three of them died. So in my mind, when I was watching this the second time, because I watched it for the first time in 2016, and I didn't know what was coming, I kind of had a... I had a feeling it was maybe going that way, but I didn't know for sure. So when I'm re-watching it this time, this year, the whole time I'm racking my brain like, what does this mean? <laughs> what does the phantom mean? Does the phantom represent death? Is this a commentary perhaps on the afterlife? Is she terrified of the phantom man because she can't accept that she is dead and she doesn't want to transition or cross over into death? Is that a possible interpretation? And I don't have an answer. And, and my interpretations could be way off and could just not be, you know, the, anywhere near. I mean, maybe that's like the strength of the film is the ambiguity, obviously. That there may be as many theories and interpretations as people who watch the film. But when you see it in the light of, oh, she's dead the whole time then what does this mean? <laughs> um, I got to thinking about the phantom man. Is he a manifestation of the pro of the trauma that she went through? Does he symbolize it? Is he a product of the traumatic car accident that she can't cope with or confront? Um, she's often described as soulless and unemotional, unfeeling. Is that how she survives? You know, as I said earlier, you know, this phantom is constantly pursuing her. Is is it the trauma? You know, the the way that she's haunted by it? You know, there's so many things. Like, I don't know. Like, this phantom just keeps reappearing. Um, so, and so I just wanted to put a few of those theories out. Like, I myself don't know. I wouldn't give a definitive answer. I wouldn't say, well, this is absolutely what I think. I don't know. I'm just proposing possibilities. But she leaves the rooming house and she has her car worked on. Like, she leaves the rooming house for good. She takes her suitcase and then she goes to a body shop where she gets her car worked on. While the car's being serviced, she walks around and she has another experience of unreality like she had earlier at the department store where no one acknowledges her or hears her it's like she doesn't exist she sees life and people everything going on around her but she isn't part of it and it got me thinking because these scenes are so important i think you know when the screen goes watery and it goes wavy and then you know no one acknowledges her and it's like she doesn't exist and i think you know, isn't this death? Isn't this death? And for me, these are the most terrifying scenes of the film. Not the zombies, you know, not the Phantom Man. It's these scenes of unreality. I mean, that's what I'm calling them. These scenes where life is going on around her, but she's not part of it. And I think that is death. I mean, everything continues without you. The world goes on without you. You are not necessary to it. You are not necessary. That is death. Once you are gone, life goes on, the world goes on, and you're not in it. You're not part of it anymore. And so that's why those scenes, I think, are so jolting for me and chilling. And why I'm so shaken by them, I think, is because... I feel like they're giving you, giving her a foreshadowing of what the world is without her. That everything goes on and people keep living and you are not part of it anymore. You are no longer there. But your absence doesn't make any difference and your absence is not felt. And isn't that, isn't there a level of horror to that? 
that you are dead, you are gone, and you're not remembered, and you're not, and everything goes on as normal. I mean, that's always the cruelty of it, or even the cruelty when you lose someone you love, that the world goes on, whether you want it to or not. And that's very painful. Very, very painful, I think. And cruel. There's a cruelty about it. And these scenes of unreality make us very destabilized as a viewer. And you're thinking, is she alive? Is she dead? Is she a ghost? Is she the living dead, like a zombie? Is she in hell? Is she in purgatory? Like, is she in some kind of liminal space between life and death? Is she dreaming? Is she in, Is she insane? Is she dreaming all of this or imagining all of it? Is it a figment of her imagination? All of, the, all of it is ambiguous. So I feel like this film is really operating on multiple levels at once. The viewer is always destabilized. You are always unsure of what's happening. And it's very dizzying you know and in light of all this in light of the idea that look how the world goes on but it you're not part of it or you don't feel connected to it you feel very disconnected from the world around you and the people around you again I'm going to come back to is this a commentary on trauma how after trauma we are forever changed just as Mary is changed by the car accident, and we feel like we're inhabiting a life, a world that we do not belong in, that we cannot make contact with or or feel connected to. You know, think of Mary's coldness, think of her lack of soul, in quotation marks, or emotion, the distance and disconnection from other people. Perhaps this is why it also resonates with me. You know, that I feel like Mary. I feel like I'm inhabiting this strange zone, forever traumatized and unable to move on, just as Mary can't seem to move on either. Because I've been through a lot of trauma in my life, mainly through loss. My father died in 2006 when I was 16 years old. And it was the single defining event of my life. And it was profoundly traumatic. It intensified and worsened my mental illness, my depression and anxiety that I still deal with. It's caused me a lot of health issues as well. Just my physical body and my mind just feel broken. I just feel like a very broken, damaged person. Like I really struggle to live. I struggle to cope. I struggle to survive because of the trauma of his death. And a lot of and other people that I've lost and other experiences I've gone through and just various different things. But that in particular, you know, is a huge trauma in my life. And and so I feel like Mary. I feel like I'm living in this world that is strange and is unknowable and is separate from me. That I'm always separate from other people. And that I can't connect with anybody or anything, that I'm not part of the human race, I guess, or, the, or of humanity at all. Like, I feel so distant from it. And I feel like I'm on the outside looking in. Because in a way, that's these scenes of unreality, that's what she's doing. It's almost like there's this plate glass window and she's looking through it and no one can hear her and no one can see her. And she can't interact with people. And there's just this complete separation and the severing of her from from other people and from life she feels separated from life and so i i would say that that's i think there is the film is saying something about trauma too is that when you go through it you're forever changed you're never the same again and you often just feel so disconnected from other people and from your life, like you don't know how to live again. And if you think about it, Mary doesn't know how to either. You know, she she just doesn't know. She doesn't know what to do. And she's constantly haunted 
by this phantom man. Just like when you go through a trauma or you go through just something really terrible, it often haunts you what happened. And it, and it can appear out of the blue. It can be triggered by anything. And it's there right in front of you, just like the phantom man is always there and he appears. And so when I think about it more, I really think the film is saying something about trauma. You know, I could be totally off. Nobody else may see that part of the film. But I see it for me. And that's why it resonates with me. And I think that's why it lingers for me. And why it goes much farther than your average horror film. Because it's saying something about pain and and brokenness. And how we experience the world. How we inhabit the world and inhabit life and our reality. And how certain experiences can completely destabilize our sense of reality and our sense of ourselves and how things can come along that can completely shatter that and what do we do with it what do we do in the aftermath of that so after this second bout of unreality she goes to a tree she touches it like she did before she hears a bird singing and that sort of breaks the spell of this unreality. Um, again, she goes back to the therapist, or she thinks it's him. And she says, I don't belong in the world. That's what it is. Something separates me from other people. And again, this goes back to what I'm trying to say, is that why Mary Henry is such a brilliant, fascinating character for me is her knowledge and her consciousness of her own separateness and how she doesn't fit into the world. And um, I really feel that is the core of the film for me and part of my personal reaction to it. She is right there. I don't belong in the world. Something separates me from other people. And that's what she says. And part of the film, she doesn't know what's real either. And we as viewers don't know what's real. This psychological, is this psychological disintegration? Is she undergoing a breakdown? There is this blurriness to the film and this ambiguity that is maddening in a way. You know, I mean, it's really maddening. Because um, you don't know what's going on, what's real, what's dream, what's this, what's that. It's like... Um, it's pretty amazing that the script was written so quickly because there do seem to be a lot of nuances and, and fascinating depths to it. But the fair, the therapist is actually the phantom man. So again, but then Mary wakes up in the car at the mechanic shop. So from the moment she's gone into the body shop or the mechanic shop to now, we don't know, was that a dream? Again, we are completely destabilized. What's real? What's not? What's a dream? What's Mary's imagination? Or, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's amazing. I think all the levels of this film. Um, I'm sure for some people, though, it would make it, like, really difficult to watch. Like, you never know what is happening in this film. But, um... So she goes to the pavilion where she sees a zombie version of herself dancing with this phantom man. And the pavilion is also full of other zombies. They have the dark makeup on. They're wearing black. Um, and it's really amazing the scene of her being the zombie. Like she's, it's like the way her face looks is just crazy. It's like, the photography and the cinemato the cinematography of this film and the black and white is just really beautiful at times. Like the light and the shadows and the makeup and it just has this, um, I don't even know what the word would be to describe it. Just there is, the cinematography was quite, quite stunning, I think, and quite beautiful at times. 
though it is a horror film. But the zombies chase her down. They seize her, really. And I got to wondering as I was watching this, you know, she says so much in the film, you know, when it comes to life or when it comes to the living, the world of the living. You know, I don't belong in that world. I feel separate from it. I don't feel like I fit in it. And I wondered when the zombies take her, you know, do they represent death? Does that mean that the zombies are, are taking her to death? And is that the world where she belongs? You know, has she found a place of belonging in death with the zombies and the ghosts? Um, life really seemed empty for her. It seemed like she couldn't find her place in it. And so does death represent some kind of escape from that? Does it represent a home for her? Has she found a home in death in a way? Um, that's possibly my interpretation of it, that the zombies claim her and the zombies take her. And perhaps that is a world where she can find belonging. You know, I mean, I'm speaking metaphorically, obviously, you know, um, but it was just something I thought about. And of course, that last final scene that I talked about, you know, where they, um, they raise the car from the river or the lake and, um, there's Mary in the car with the two other women. And so we're like, so what was what we saw? Like, was, was she dead the whole time? You know, it's like. Again, I don't have any definitive interpretation or definitive theory, but I, I pull things. I just sort of pull bobs and bits from the film that I think are resonant, that I think are important, that I think are take it above maybe your normal, you know, your average horror fair. You know, that um, I think there is a lot to this film about trauma, about disconnection from people and from life and how you get to that point where you feel so separate from people and um you don't feel like there is a place for you and I think a lot of people feel that in the world and I think that's a relatable thing about the film and that you see in the character of Mary Henry you see her interaction with men and how predatory men can be and how often she is trying to escape men and run from them and and yet she is always sort of pursued by them at the same time and there's a level of horror about that that is very much a part of a lot of women's lives of just constantly having to deal with men and constantly being vulnerable to their aggression and their advances that I think the film critiques and exposes obviously and So there's that and um the surrealism of the film is fascinating and the atmosphere, the mood, the cinematography, the location, the um it's just there's so much to this film, isn't there? And and Mary is I think a really fascinating character and a well-rounded, complex, interesting character, female character, and um, and also the aspect of the film that I think is so interesting to a lot of people is never knowing what's happening, never knowing what's real, what's not real, what's dream, what's reality, what's part of the imagination, you know, it operates on so many levels all at once, and so it's just this it's this amazing ride that you go on when you're watching this film and um, you may not every understand every part of it and there may be holes you know in the plot or something there may be things that maybe don't make sense or, or come together and I know some people have said the acting is kind of stilted or kind of hokey or I mean I guess it is to some extent I, th I thought Candace did a really great job I, I thought she was authentic and believable for the most part. I mean, I know sometimes she makes these crazy faces, you know, um, when she's scared and things like that. So maybe there's an element of campiness or camp uh, to the film, but it doesn't bother me. 
you know, I think, um, I still think the acting performances are pretty naturalistic and pretty, pretty believable, honestly. I mean, for a low-budget film made for $30,000, I think they did a lot with what they had. And I think they were really ingenious in the way that they put the plot together and the locations that they used and the way that they, um told the story and they told it in a really just fascinating interesting innovative way and in a and it has gone on to influence a lot of people I think and it's become a cult classic for a reason and so I think there's a lot there and I think that a lot of people watch it and take different things from it I may be approaching it in a way from a feminist perspective of Mary Henry as a character and and what does the film say about trauma and what does it say about re the relations between men and women sometimes? I mean, that's not the whole film. That's not the whole aspect of it. But it's a part of it. And her alienation and her loneliness. We don't always see female characters like that who show that loneliness and alienation and that disconnection. We don't always get women characters who who represent that or who express that and I think Mary Henry does and um I mean whatever you think about the film you obviously have your own interpretation or your own connections to it but I'm just trying to explain mine and I'm trying to work through well why did this film stay with me so much and I think it is the focus on trauma I think it is Mary as a character and what she has to say about um alienation and disconnection from the world especially and her separateness from people and that is really important to me and that sense of unreality that she goes through a couple of times in the film that really stays with me and um always will always and um so yeah i think i've said everything i possibly can about this film i love it definitely recommend it um halloween would not be complete i don't think for me if i don't watch carnival of souls so watching it a second time this year i enjoyed it just as much as the first time last year um in 2016 when i first saw it so i'm really glad i got to do an episode about it i hope that i was informative i hope that you took something from this episode and um and that you just think about it in a different way or think about your own connection to it. It's a great film and it definitely deserves to be remembered. So I'll stop here. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.